This is Reconsidering, the podcast about life and finding ways to make it more satisfying. I'm Meredith Black. I'm Aaron Walter. I'm Bob Baxley. As someone who just hit 40, selfishly, this next episode couldn't be more timely. It's as though waking up on my birthday and hearing the word 40 put me into a complete tizzy. I started asking these questions. Is half of my life really over? Will I be as happy in the second part of my life as the first? What have I accomplished? What will people remember me for? Maybe you've asked these same questions, whether you're 25, 40, 65. Do these questions really have anything to do with hitting a certain number? Or is this just how we've been wired to think? Our guest today is Kieran Satia. He's an MIT philosophy professor and the author of a book called Midlife, A Philosophical Guide. He's the perfect person to talk to about leading a fulfilled life at any age and help guide us through the inevitable, accepting to move forward in time, no matter what age you are. Hi, I'm Kieran Setia. I teach philosophy at MIT. Hey, Kieran, thanks for joining us. So one of the things we like to do to get the show started is we do this sort of sequence of lightning round questions, sort of do you prefer one or the other type thing. Hope you're ready. Thanks for playing in advance. They'll start off easy and get a little bit more interesting as we go along. So here we go. Paper or plastic? Paper. Chocolate or vanilla? Vanilla. Morning or night? Morning. Library or coffee shop? Oh, coffee shop. Text or voicemail? Text. Window or aisle? Aisle. Planned or spontaneous? Planned. Beatles or Bach? Bach. MoMA or Natural History Museum? MoMA. Truth or dare? Truth. Han Solo or Darth Vader? Han Solo. Homer Simpson or Ted Lasso? Oh, Ted Lasso. Montaigne or Seneca? Montaigne. Dante's Inferno or Milton's Paradise Lost? Dante. Shakespeare or Einstein? Shakespeare. Dictionary or encyclopedia? Can I put in a third? Let's do yeah. thesaurus. Yeah, very nice. Oh, that's a good one. My favorite book, Roger's Thesaurus, yeah. is really the greatest attempt to understand the world. Yeah, that's awesome. Beauty or wisdom? Wisdom. And finally, poetry or prose? Prose. All right. Thanks, Karen. That was great. Sure. Yeah, my pleasure. So, Karen, thank you so much for joining us today. Super excited to have you here. And the three of us have read your book, Midlife, A Philosophical Guide. And I'm curious, why did you personally decide to write a book about midlife? And what were you going through when you set out to write this book? Well, this is sort of, you know, the opposite of clickbait is, you know, why did I write this book? The answer will not surprise you, which is that I was going through what I happily described as a midlife crisis. If I embraced the label partly because it was funny. And so when I told friends I was having a midlife crisis, the reaction was, I got a lot more mockery than genuine concern, which is kind of what I wanted. I mean, my sense is that I was going through a lot of things. I mean, as I say in the book, I think there are many midlife crises. There's sort of the grinding necessity of work. There's the narrowing of options. There's regret about the past, all the things you can't change. There's the prospect of mortality is getting closer. There's the tyranny of project after project to complete. And I suppose for me, all of those were part of it. But the thing that was most central was this guilty sense that I had a job I liked and was incredibly fortunate to have. I was an academic, I was teaching, I was studying philosophy, but my relationship to it 
felt incredibly empty. It felt like I would work on a paper, I'd finish it, then I'd work on the next one. I'd teach the class, I'd get it done, I'd get the assignments back, I'd meet some new students, and I'd forget those students, and I'd meet the next bunch of students. And there's a sense that it was just one thing after another. And I found that both distressing and perplexing. This, it wasn't that I thought it was worthless. I thought, this is all worth doing. It's all meaningful activity. And yet, it felt empty. And so there was the combination of emotional distress and intellectual puzzlement in the sense that as a philosopher who works on questions about how to live, I ought to have something to say about the possibility of feeling so empty, even when doing things that are worthwhile. And that was really the impetus for the book. You mentioned that you largely wrote it to help yourself manage through sort of your own midlife challenges. I'm sort of wondering, like, how did that turn out for you? I mean, did you feel like you found some resolution through the writing of the book? And, you know, it's been a few years now since the book came out. I'm, I'm wondering, like, what have you learned in the years since it came out? That is a good question. And in many ways, a hard question, because I think I was surprised a bit by how things turned out. It's not really about radically changing your life at midlife in terms of what outwardly you do. Sometimes that is what you have to do. You have to quit your job or you have to end a relationship. But a lot of it was about the ways in which we can fail to appreciate our lives because we're seeing them the wrong way. Certain kinds of illusions and errors we get into in thinking about missing out or regret or the wrong way of relating to what we're doing. So in a way, it was a book that was intended to convince me and perhaps the reader to see what you're doing differently and then do it in a new way that's less empty. And then if that doesn't work, maybe you think, hey, I do need to make some outward changes. I expected that what would happen afterwards was that I would go back and carry on with my old job, but just be happier doing it now. And I have gone back to it and I, I've carried on teaching and I have changed how I do that. My relationship to it, I think, is healthier and happier now than it was when I started working on the book. I thought it was a one-off. I thought I'd finish writing this book and then go back to being a, a kind of closeted academic back in the ivory tower or whatever. But that really hasn't been true. So I think the big thing that I didn't anticipate was the excitement and the interest of writing for a non-academic audience and the fact that I would want to keep doing that and that I would not want to go back to just being an academic writing for colleagues. So that was, a, I think, a, the biggest change in the years since writing the book that I, the book itself really didn't anticipate and that I wasn't expecting. Did you find that people found this book to be incredibly comforting? I certainly did. I felt like I wasn't going this alone, so to speak, you know, hitting a milestone birthday of 40. And I'm curious to hear kind of like what you've learned in the past few years from writing this book and what people's responses have been. The response has been really wonderful. Yeah. I mean, I, I certainly felt like I was writing it in a way to myself to sort of help myself through this period of malaise I mean, in a way, what happened was that I, I wrote a couple of academic-ish pieces about midlife that were a little, you know, they were published in philosophy journals, but they were a little quirky for regular academic articles. But then I found it helpful and thought, you know, I feel like I'm actually getting somewhere in applying philosophical ideas to things I'm going through and that I suspect other people are going through, and I wanted to share that. And so that's how I came to write the book. And then, yeah, there was something kind of amazing. I suppose it's not a surprise, in a way, if you write a book that is intended to reach people, you shouldn't be shocked when, in fact, people respond in the way you hoped they would. But yeah, it was something, it was kind of amazing doing things like readings or just getting emails from people who said, yeah, my experience was like yours in this respect, and this was helpful, but this other thing seemed different to me. And just to have people engage 
personally as well as intellectually with the things I was writing about. I mean, for me, coming to this from a career in academia, it was a relationship to audience that was just so completely unlike the relationship you have to professional colleagues when you present a paper and then they pepper it with criticisms. And that's productive and important as part of the intellectual life of an academic, but it's a different mode of writing and a different relationship to audience. Let's dig into the book a little bit, maybe starting with the title, this idea of midlife, because it's actually not a new concept. It's not really a modern concept. In the book, you cite the Stoics frequently reflecting on their midlife. I really enjoyed the metaphor that you used of like arriving to the crest of the hill for the first time. And finally, you can see what's on the other side. And you realize that it's not that far down to the bottom of the hill on the other side. That's essentially what midlife is. What's the origin of that term? I think in a way your question brings out, there are sort of two parallel histories. There's the history of the phrase, which it's unusual in that mostly when you look into the history of some kind of cultural trope, it descends into darkness and it's obscurity. Whereas in this case, there is a specific point of origin. So in 1965, this Canadian psychoanalyst, Elliot Jacques, writes an essay, Death and the Midlife Crisis. And that's really the origin of the phrase midlife crisis. And then it gets picked up in the 1970s in pop culture by the journalist Gail Shee. He has a book called Passages that sort of popularized the idea of the midlife crisis. So that particular term has a kind of 1960s, 1970s origin, and then it becomes a kind of cliche in the 80s and 90s, and then it's sort of sedimented now into our sort of cultural vocabulary. The actual phenomenon, as you pointed out, of sort of approaching the middle of life and having a sense of finitude and a sense that you now have a past that you can't change and that constrains what your life is going to be like, and that you have to figure out how to live in ways that are limited and confined, that experience doesn't date from 1965. And you can find sort of models of that all the way back to Dante midway through life in a dark wood, trying to reevaluate what he's doing. Or, you know, people have used Odysseus as an example of, of a, a sort of a metaphor for a midlife crisis, sort of voyaging the world, having affairs, and then finally coming home and seeing it anew. So I think the experience has to do fundamentally with the temporal sort of shape and structure of human life, the fact that time is irreversible and we have a limited number of years to live, and that while it's possible to ignore that for a while, it gets harder and harder as you reach midlife and as your life sort of achieves a kind of more definite shape, that that sense of constraint, temporal and in terms of your options, can often become a kind of source of difficulty. And that, I think, is the phenomenon I was interested in coming to grips with. You know, that leads me to kind of what you talked about in the book about regret. I think you get to this point where you start looking at what could have been or what should have been. I'd love to hear a little bit about what your approach was in the book discussing maybe your own regrets and how you kind of tackled that issue and turned it into something more positive. Yeah. I mean, regret, I think, is a big part of the, the sort of midlife experience. And I think it has different dimensions. One phenomenon that I think was very striking to me was the sense of regret coexisting with a feeling that things hadn't gone terribly wrong. It's just that the regret was about all the things you were never going to do, all the things that you're going to miss out on, which is different from the kind of regret about a definite mistake or something terrible that happened to you and you wish it had been different. 
both of those kinds of regret raise interesting philosophical, emotional, practical issues. I mean, if you start with just missing out, part of what I found helpful in trying to think that through was the way in which that phenomenon that there are all kinds of lives you aren't going to live. Like I had wanted at various points in my life to be a poet or to be a doctor. And I thought, those things are not going to happen. Like, this is my job. I'm going to be doing some version of this for the foreseeable future. Radical change wasn't wasn't really on the cards. And that can generate a lot of angst. And sometimes, you know, sometimes you do need to make a change. But the thing that I found very helpful in reframing that was to recognize that the source of that phenomenon of missing out comes from the fact that there are so many things worth doing that you can appreciate the value of. So in a way, what's happening when you have that experience is an inevitable consequence of the sort of richness of the world. Not just the richness of the world, the richness of your evaluative response to it. And one way to sort of reframe that is to sort of flip it around and think, okay, well, what would the world have to be like for us not to experience this kind of missing out? It would have to be that either there really isn't that much variety in what's worth doing, or that we're completely closed off to it. We're not able to appreciate it. So really, the only way you could live a life that wasn't characterized by that kind of missing out, the kind of well, there's so many things I wish I could have done, regret, would be to live an incredibly narrow, impoverished life. There's this quote from Plato I, I use in the book that I really like, where he's describing people who just care about pleasure. He says, you know, they don't live a human life, but the life of a, a mollusk or one of those creatures in shells that lives in the sea. So it's this idea of a kind of incredibly monochrome existence. And that's what it would take not to live with missing out. So there's a way in which it's not that this makes the problem go away. It's that recognizing its inevitability, the fact that it's just a feature of the human condition, and in fact, a side effect of something wonderful about the human condition, like the, the diversity and plurality of values, I think is, is a way that I found helpful in coming to terms with it. I mean, so it's, it's connected with the thought that you, people often have when they think about missing out, which is, but then if you'd done the other thing, you'd also have missed out on this. So that there's no way out of this. This is just part of coming to terms with the fact that the world has so much in it. So I have kind of this crazy idea that sometime in the future, thanks to advances in medical technology, some of us might get to live to be, say, 800 years old. And when I think about regret in midlife, it feels like pretty overwhelming if you imagine being to 800. Seems like a lot of time to accumulate regrets. I'm wondering, like, what do you think happens to something like like midlife and all these reconsiderations if you were able to live to some extraordinarily long period of time, like 800 years? I mean, I'm not sure how, yeah, what, what, when when these kinds of things would hit us. I mean, one thing to say about the thing I'm calling the midlife crisis is, you know, if you're suitably precocious, you could have this much earlier. One of the people I talk about in the book is John Stuart Mill, who has a nervous breakdown when he's 20, that had a lot in common with a certain kind of midlife crisis. So you can start thinking about the finitude of life and the diminution of options whenever you like. It's just, it gets harder to ignore it when you're my age or so. I mean, I think in the case where life is vastly longer and the people whose lifespan is 800, I mean, there's a way in which even that, even immortality doesn't really make the problems of regret go away. I mean, the problem that you're going to miss out is in a, in a way assuage because you've got many more future decades where you could do other things. But no matter how many other things you do in the future decades, you're still going to be in a position of looking back to the first 40 years and thinking, well, there's all the things I didn't do then that I can never go back and do. I can do different things in the future that are a bit like them. And similarly with regret about mistakes or misfortunes or failures or ways things go wrong. 
I mean, those kinds of problems have to do with, again, the sort of irreversibility of time. So the problem with living 800 years is that you have ever so many more hundreds of years to screw up and then accumulate all these mistakes that you then feel tortured by. So in some ways, I think it might be liberating to have that longer lifespan. You'd have more variety of things you can do over the course of your life. But there would also be a certain kind of oppressiveness. Like imagine having 700 years worth of regrets about all the things you've done wrong. I mean, assuming you remember them, at least we only have to put up with, you know, 70 years of regret. Hey, Aaron Walter here. Bob, Meredith, and I are so excited by the reception that Reconsidering has received from listeners. Turns out people are really enjoying the show. We're working really hard to bring you conversations from best-selling authors and deep thinkers who have insights that can help you find satisfaction in your work and your life. If you found the show meaningful and useful, we have a small ask. We hope that you can help us grow the community by just leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts, on Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Yes, they now have podcast reviews too. Wherever you listen, just search for Reconsidering in the podcast directory and leave us a quick review. This will help others find the show. It's also really helpful for Bob and Meredith and me to get your feedback as it'll help us refine the show. Our sincere, deepest thanks in advance for your support. Now, let's get back to the show. Earlier, when you were talking about this kind of repetition of like going to class, teaching students, you know, new crop of students, you write another article and you felt this sense of malaise of that repetition. It's meaningful, but it feels a little empty. That's something I think probably a lot of listeners have experienced in their own way in their lives. And in the book, you give language to this to help us understand it. You talk about telic activities and atelic activities. And one gives us more meaning and one kind of keeps us on that treadmill. Could you articulate what those concepts mean and how they apply to our lives? Yeah, absolutely. So this was the thing that probably helped me most. And it depends on a, this terminology that is adapted from linguistics, but the core of it is the idea of telos or end. And in the idea of a telic activity is one that has a kind of terminal point, a kind of end goal it's aiming at. So it might be getting a promotion or having kids or getting married or finishing high school or whatever it might be. It has There's some kind of terminal point you're aiming at at which you're done. And the thing about telic activities, which so most of what we think of as projects are like that, is that in a way, this point of satisfaction is always in the future. It's the thing you're aiming at and you haven't achieved yet, or it's in the past. It's something that you've, you're now done, it's finished with. And it's never really in the present. And worse than that, there's sort of a way in which when you're engaging in a telic activity or a project, trying to complete a project, what you're doing is you've got this thing that's giving structure and meaning to your life, what you're trying to do is finish it. In other words, expel it from your life, get rid of it. And there's something really kind of perverse about that. And so some philosophers have thought, well, that's just how it goes. That's the nature of human activities, that they have this project-like structure. But actually, there are activities that aren't telic in that way. They're atelic activities. So they don't have a kind of terminal point they aim at. So you could think, you know, as well as helping your kid finish his homework tonight, there's parenting, that ongoing activity. Or instead of, you know, writing a book about the midlife crisis, there's just doing philosophy or teaching philosophy. 
And those are activities that you will eventually finish doing in the sense you'll stop doing them. But there's not a kind of terminal point in which you're done and there's just, that's over with. There's no more of it to do. And what's more, they don't have this sort of forward, backward looking structure where the point of satisfaction is deferred into the future or already you know, banked in the past. Insofar, if what you really want is to be spending time with your kids or just going for a walk or listening to music without any sort of particular end goal, then when you're doing it, you've got exactly what you want. Like the, the thing you value is happening right now. So I think that's what really came as a revelation to me and the core of my midlife crisis was realizing that things that I really loved, teaching, studying philosophy, thinking about philosophy, that are really fundamentally have their value, at least a core part of their value as atelic activities and the ongoing process had been sort of transformed into projects that I turned them into a bunch of deliverables, like a bunch of tasks to be completed. And those tasks were what were generating this sense of emptiness, the sense that what I was doing right now wasn't the real thing. It was all projected into the future or immediately in the past. And then I had to find another one and another thing to do. And that kind of treadmill, that sense of relentless project pursuit, the relentless need to get things done was something that I think I had really fallen into and had to try to extract myself from. Again, as I said earlier, that was less about changing outwardly what I do than about changing my whole orientation towards it and what, what I valued about it, where I found the meaning in it. I think this is actually a really interesting point right now because I think that the pandemic is a wake-up call for a lot of people that their to-do list shifted and they found that emptiness of the atelic activity that, you know, searching for meaning. That, that's my hunch or that's my personal observation for myself as well. So I don't know if you have thoughts about how the pandemic has shifted people's thoughts about this. Yeah, I mean, part of what I think is striking about the pandemic is this sort of way in which our relationship to time suddenly becomes an object of attention, like features of our relationship to time that normally we just don't notice, like the, the way in which time is just slipping away, options are narrowing, we're caught in a rut. That's true for many of us a lot of the time, but we don't notice it. And somehow the shift of perspective that the pandemic sort of caused for a lot of us allowed that to come into view when it might not otherwise have come into view. There's a comedian, James Acaster, who jokes about talking to someone who tells him, you know, coming out of a terrible movie, that's two hours of my life I'll never get back. And Acaster says, I hate to break it to you, but every hour of your life is an hour you're never getting back. And there's something really <laughs> profound about that. There's a way in which at certain times we become aware of the preciousness of time and the way in which there are conscious decisions to be made about which activities to devote ourselves to and how to structure our relationship to them. But weirdly, we go through enormous chunks of our lives being basically oblivious to those hard questions. And yeah, I think the pandemic has created a kind of disturbing, stressful place of reflection, I've been sort of watching the reports on the number of people who've basically resigned or decided I'm not going back to my job because they've been allowed a kind of stepping back moment to think, is this actually what I want to keep doing given that I'm now suddenly confronted with the value of options and the finitude of a kind of concrete sense of the limitedness of my life. So I think it has had a, a really deep effect on people's you know, existential reflection. 
Don't you think that it's kind of similar to people who go through retirement? Like, I feel like people who, everybody who's gone through this pandemic right now has taken a step back and kind of or has the opportunity to reevaluate their life and has a little bit more time. But that's kind of also what happens when you retire, right? Is, you know, you're marching towards the line, you get there and then you're like, oh, now what do I do? Or like, what does the next phase of my life look like? No, that's a great point. I mean, I think, again, the thing that I call the midlife crisis that I think you know, is really many crises and often occurs around midlife. You could have it precociously at 20, but it could also be prompted much later. And there's several things going on there with retirement. So one is to do with projects and being more or less project focused. I and mean, I think one thing that kind of people who successfully transition to retirement seem often to do is to find value in atelic activities, to shift the sources of what matters in their life from achievements to things like hobbies and gardening or listening to music or things that are not focused around producing outcomes, but about the sort of value of being in the moment of what you're doing. And I think you can see why that would be an, a kind of adaptive thing to do as you get older and the timeline gets foreshortened. There's another kind of distinction I make between what I call ameliorative value and existential value. So the idea of ameliorative value is often a lot of what we're doing that's genuinely worthwhile is really about solving problems or answering needs that we'd rather not be dealing with. So it really matters and it really is valuable, but you know, we'd rather not have to deal with a blow up at work or a problem in a relationship or have to figure out how to make dinner for the kids and get them to school on time and get them to practice. And there's all this stuff that's worth doing, but it's kind of a nuisance. And there's a way in which if that was all that life offered, if the best you could hope for, was to solve problems that really you'd rather not be dealing with, there really wouldn't be any point living. So there has to be some other source of value. So that's why I talk about existential value, the kind of value that makes existence worthwhile in the first place, the kind of things that are valuable, but are not just about solving problems or answering needs. And so I think another thing that maybe comes into focus at the transition into retirement from a like period in which work is central to many people's lives, work either in the home or outside the home, to a period of not needing to get stuff done is a transition from thinking about how do I solve problems to thinking, what are the kinds of things that make me glad to be alive at all? And again, that's a, a kind of thing that maybe retirement forces on people as the necessary activities of work sort of get subtracted. But it's another kind of reflection that you could undertake earlier in life, and many people do. And maybe the pandemic has contributed to that too, that people start to think about the things in their life which are just dealing with problems that really they'd rather not have to be bothered with in the first place. And is there enough in life? Are they finding enough things in their lives that actually make it worthwhile and meaningful to begin with? The period where the kind of sandwich generation phenomenon where childcare and dealing with parents are really at their peak is sort of the high point for that, the high point for feeling like almost all of my life is just devoted to solving other people's problems. Right. Um, even if it's meaningful, it's hard to feel satisfied in that kind of situation. I want to push on this existential issue a little bit here because you know it, it seems like when you get to retirement, there's other points in your life too where you do get the opportunity to choose how you want to spend your time. And you mentioned you know both choosing atelic activities and then choosing hobbies. And then with hobbies, you kind of quickly mentioned gardening and listening to music. I love the early part of your book where you're talking about John Stuart Mill and sort of his formula for happiness. And it hinged kind of 
if I can paraphrase, kind of on two things. One was spend time with other people, <laughs> you know, and make your life about something besides yourself. And then there was this idea of finding a passion that you can really love. And he, I guess, was an avid reader of Wordsworth. And it got me thinking about what's a high quality habit? Because somehow it seems to me that strangely, like watching baseball seems like kind of an enjoyable habit, whereas watching reality TV or doom scrolling on social media does not. And I, I, yeah. I guess I was starting to sort of try to figure out, you know, kind of from a philosopher's point of view, how do we distinguish between hobbies and what we might call diversions? That's a sort of kind of low-key way in to one of the biggest kind of challenges and puzzles in moral philosophy, which is the question of objective value, really. The question, are there really standards for assessing some things as more worth doing than others? And it's an idea that on the one hand, people feel uncomfortable about. I mean, there, there is a lot of unfair judgment. I mean, a lot of, and about reality TV, a lot of TV now, watching TV is regarded as kind of passive, low down on the hierarchy. A lot of TV is creatively complex and interesting. And you know, like it, it's a form of relation to art that's as admirable as any kind of relation to art. And it's not clear why watching baseball would sort of be at a, at a higher level than that. So I think there's a, a lot of judgment to be wary of. But on the other hand, we don't want to kind of throw out the idea of judgment altogether and just say, well, just whatever you happen to be into is totally fine. Not just because sometimes people are into things that are harmful to others and therefore morally problematic, but also because you know, philosophers love these extreme cases, but you know, they like to imagine someone who just counts blades of grass all day or you know, Sisyphus rolling a boulder up a hill. And the thought, well, we don't want to lose the idea that of the ways you might spend your life meaningfully, some have got to be better than rolling a boulder up and down a hill all day or just counting blades of grass. And you know, that comes out when you think about contexts in which you're caring about other people. When you ask, what kind of life do I want for my kids? There's a palpable sort of sense of some kinds of ways they could spend their lives, all of which are sort of morally above board, are, are sort of more meaningful, more worthwhile than others. And so I think there's just a deep philosophical challenge, which is how do we hang on to the idea that there is, in some sense, a kind of rough hierarchy. There really are value judgments that we can defend and that we need to defend in order to be able to find meaning in our lives without giving into the kind of prejudice and judgmentalism that makes us wary of that. And I don't think there's a quick answer to that. I think there's an irreducible element of judgment here. There's no sort of algorithm or philosophical menu that's going to answer all these problems. I do think one of the ideas that philosophers lean hard on here that is really valuable, it goes back to the problem of missing out, is the idea of pluralism and the related idea of incommensurability. So the idea that there are many different kinds of things that are valuable and while we can form rough judgments of what's better or worse, very often there aren't clear criteria. Like not everything can be evaluated precisely in terms of quantities of value in the way you know quantities of money can be evaluated. So we can make coarse-grained judgments like Beethoven is a better composer than I am, but we can't make fine-grained judgments like Beethoven's a better composer than Bach. And similarly, we can say things like working as a nurse is more worthwhile than counting blades of grass. But fine-grained judgments about what's better or worse, they may just not make sense. So there's a kind of role for judgment that we have to accept a certain kind of humility in, in making those kinds of discriminations. But I do think we need that idea. I don't think we can just jettison the idea that some things are more worth doing than others without just jettisoning the idea that anything's worth doing at all. And that 
is sort of a radically nihilistic place to end up. In the book, you write the key to happiness is managing expectations. And you point out that there is a paradox to happiness, that the more that we search for it and chase it, the more elusive it becomes. How do you think about that paradox of happiness in your life in particular? And what advice do you have for listeners for how we might manage our expectations? It's a good question. And there's a certain kind of irony in noting this feature that philosophers call the paradox of egoism, that the idea that if you exclusively and especially focus on your own happiness, you're likely to be less happy because happiness comes from caring about other things. I mean, there's an irony in bringing that up in a kind of philosophical self-help book. I mean, the, the whole point of the book is to say, this is a book you will turn to at a point when in your midlife crisis, you're feeling a kind of dearth of happiness, a dearth of meaning in your life. And to say, yeah, well, one of the best bits of advice is don't look for happiness, don't look for meaning, has a kind of pragmatic self-undermining quality. So I think it's tricky to manage that, to sort of figure out what to do about this fact. My sense is that there isn't really a single kind of trick to managing expectations. It plays out differently in different cases. So it's easiest to talk about examples. So one we've already talked about a little bit was the idea of missing out. So one way to think about what managing expectations is when you're worried about all the things you'll never get to do in life is to think about sort of reframing that as an inevitable side effect of the richness of life. That's a way to sort of think, well, what do I expect? Like, what am I hoping for when I push back against or I'm frustrated about the ways in which I'm going to miss out on things. And there's similar kind of strategies that play out differently in different cases. But in the case of mortality, thinking about death, the analog of that is sort of thinking, well, when I'm afraid of death, when I have the sense of a limited amount of time in front of me, how can I manage expectations? How can I reframe that? One way to do that is just to think about the fact that the alternative to dying would be you know, immortality, not dying. But immortality, while a kind of desirable thing, maybe, I mean, maybe not, but it's kind of like a superpower. The right attitude to immortality is kind of like the attitude to firing laser beams from your eyes or being able to leap tall buildings in a single bound. Well, that would be an amazing superpower to have. But I shouldn't feel aggrieved that I don't have superpowers. And that's you know how I should feel about not being immortal. There's the, it's just another superpower I don't have. As I said, it plays out differently in different cases, but lots of the kinds of things that we get caught up on around midlife involve sort of taking a perspective from close up where something seems painful or distressing or, or a kind of loss and not having stepped back and managed expectations by thinking about the sort of wider context against which we can contrast that. Like, what would it be not to miss out? What would it be not to face death? How should I think about those radical alternatives? And often, not always, thinking about those radical alternatives sort of casts a new and in some ways consoling light on the difficulties that initially lead you to a self-help book, you know, lead you to a book that's going to try to help you deal with problems of meaning in your life. I want to pivot a little bit. I think there's this stereotype out there that the midlife crisis is a largely male phenomenon. You know, you think of like the man who goes out and buys the Porsche or, you know, has the affair or whatever. Is that still true? Was it ever true? And if so, has it shifted? It's interesting because that definitely is the kind of cultural stereotype. 
weirdly, when the sort of idea was popularized, if you look back to, for instance, Gail Shee's book Passages in the 1970s, she gave equal attention to women and men and thought of the midlife crisis as a sort of it's a differentiated phenomenon, but that applied to both. And she was writing in the U.S. in the 1970s. Fewer women were college educated. Like the question of what to do with post-motherhood life was a kind of central crux. And so things have changed through the, the sort of partial success of various kinds of feminist movements, there's room for women to have a midlife crisis that looks a bit more like the stereotypical man's midlife crisis that's more career-oriented. But what's weirdly happened in the aftermath of the 70s was that that balanced focus in the work of people like she has been replaced with this emphasis on the male midlife crisis. And what is going on with that? If I had to speculate, and there is some historical research to support this, that it's a function of a, a kind of sexist, misogynistic focus on centering men. So that it's just, there's more interest in men's experience. And also the role of the kind of stereotype for men is to sort of justify a certain indulgence of bad behavior. And so those kinds of features have been picked up on in ways that involve a kind of structural inequality. So it's much easier to focus on a jokey way of justifying bad behavior by men than to think about structural obstacles to women's careers in the second half of their lives, which would involve addressing various kinds of injustice and kind of political structure. So I think that that's really a big part of the story. So if you look at the situation now, the idea of a sort of crisis around midlife has been, to some extent, replaced by these studies by economists about the U-curve and happiness, which suggest a kind of gentle curve from relatively higher happiness in youth, bottoming out in sort of in your 40s, and then coming up again in your 60s and 70s. Those models, which if they hold up, they apply to women as much as men. They're not gendered. So that basic phenomenon that there's evidence that midlife is a time of particular low life satisfaction doesn't seem to be gendered. So what might be true is that men get much more than their fair share of attention, but not, I think, that they deserve it. So I love this this U-shaped happiness curve, mostly because I'm starting to come up the other side of it. Oh, good, um, good, yeah. <laughs> and it uh, looks like you still have a few decades on you still, but I'm, I'm getting pretty close to it. This seems like a good off-ramp for what's been an amazing conversation. We have kind of one final question we always like to ask people, which is to get you to sort of engage and again, sort of another thought experiment and do a little bit of reverse mentoring with yourself. So, you know, if you can bring into your mind Kieran when you were, say, 25 years old and sort of imagine that Kieran and what he was thinking about and what he was doing, what do you think that Kieran would say to the Kieran you are today? What kind of advice do you think that they might have for you? Oh, that's really interesting. What advice would they have for me, not what I would have for them? Okay, what advice would they have for me? Being a, an anxious person, I, I think what comes to mind is sort of the fears I had about what I was going to do later in life that I had about myself at 25. So I think the advice I would give to myself then would not be that different from the advice I've been trying to give to myself writing this book, namely to not lose touch with what's actually magical for me about philosophy and not to let the competitive aspects of academia sort of chew me up and spit me out. And, you know, I think they chewed me up for a while and I'm now attempting to extricate myself. But I think I was afraid of that even then. I mean, I think at 25, I was relatively young to college and grad school. At that point, I think I was looking headlong into the trials of the tenure track. And I think I was afraid that 
I was going to have the kind of professionalization that turned me into a, a kind of career obsessed academic. And that is more or less what happened. So I think, I think <laughs> that my 25 year old would, wa- would warn me that what was going to happen was going to happen, then it would probably happen. And then I would have to try and extricate myself from it afterwards. Yeah, it's interesting how wise our younger selves turned out to often be. And by the same token, how how little we seem to learn later on in life. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like yeah. I can see I can see myself going over a cliff. Yep, I am going over the cliff. Wow, I'm over the cliff. Why did why didn't I see that happening? Yeah, it does go that way sometimes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Where can people learn more about you? The easiest place to find me is probably, I say with some embarrassment, Twitter. I don't tweet that much, but it's all in one place. So I'm just at Kieran Setia. It's just my name following the app. And that has a link to my website and my book. And I have a new book I'm working on that I should take this chance to plug, which is, it's called Life is Hard. I wrote it during the pandemic, and it's about how philosophy can address the adversities of life. It's sort of a, what, what would a philosophical guide to the good life look like if it started with the fact that mostly living is about dealing with the ways in which life's a struggle. Well, thank you so much for being with us and sharing sharing your insights. The book is a wonderful thing to read. I hope uh, everybody out there takes the time to read it. And I appreciate you sharing both your own personal experiences of how you've kind of navigated some of these challenges, but then, of course, taking the time to like write them down and share them with everybody else. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. He was really interesting and great and just such a different guest than what we've had on in the past, which I think makes it all the more, I don't know, inspiring for me, especially going through midlife. I feel like like now I'm going up. I'm not going down, right? <laughs> yeah. And that we're all in this together, which is incredibly comforting. I like what you started with when we were chatting with Kieran, that it was comforting to hear that other people go through the same thing. In fact, almost all humans who have the privilege of passing through this part of life they you know you kind of wonder like how much time do i have left have i done all that i wanted to do and there's some comfort in hearing that others wrestle with the same types of questions yeah he was uh, not what you expect when you think of a philosophy professor at MIT he's uh funny and engaged and grounded you know his online writings he writes a lot about stand up comedy which is really interesting i love the piece he had about foma and how we should all be grateful that there are things that we feel that we're missing out on. You know, that that's both a sign that we have an internal passion to be interested and that there's actually things happening in the world. That if you didn't have FOMA, it would be a very sad, flat, monochromatic was the word he used, monochromatic life. I just thought that was a really interesting shift in perspective, which, you know, the book's kind of filled with those sorts of just not really changing your external circumstances so much as just changing the way that you you think about it. You know, he, he didn't get into it in our conversation, but he has that whole thing in the book where he talks about why should you fear being dead any more than you fear the time before you were born? Because that's the same thing. <laughs> you know? I love that. Yeah. Yeah. There's a quote from the book. He said, projects eliminate meaning from your life. And that shook me to the core because I love projects. I love telic activities. I love checklists. Meredith, I think you and I are on the, the oh, same obsessed. page there. <laughs> I love <laughs> I love doing things, you know. It feels really good, but it does feel like a cup of coffee or a candy bar that, you know, you get through it and you're like, okay, when's my next one? 
and it just feels like you have to keep feeding the beast to be satisfied versus those atelic things. I'm a big gardener. I like to garden. And we heard Judy Wirt in a previous episode use that metaphor for life and career. You know, it's a, it's a garden, which is a very atelic thing. And those things feel like they give me lasting satisfaction. Actually, like feeding people, cooking and feeding people gives me lasting satisfaction. Even though it's a, you know, I make the food, serve it to people, they eat it and it's, it's over. But it's still like this lasting, satiating satisfaction that feels very different. So I need to rethink projects, basically. Thinking about projects, the one thing that kind of resonated with me is that he said happiness is about caring for other people Mm. or for other things, which I thought was really interesting. And I'd actually, I mean, I love taking care of other people, but I'd never thought about that as what makes me happy. I always think of what projects, what hobbies, what my career is going to look like. And so it's kind of like pivoting your own brain a little bit to start thinking about what happiness means and how you kind of start striving for things that might not be about you and are about other people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We touched on it a little bit there at the end with him with the John Stuart Mill piece where, you know, where John Stuart Mill in the, I guess, early, his early twenties had that nice paragraph about what's the key to happiness. And for one, it was, you know, not attacking happiness directly. Happiness is a consequence of doing other things. One of which is being in service to others and getting out of your own head and out of your own ego, which I think is also where we started this conversation with, it's nice to know you're not alone. And then there was this question of like how you spend your time and are they atelic projects? Are they atelic activities, which sort of led into this discussion about hobbies. And, you know, it also ties into something that Koshik Panchal shared with us, you know, last season when he talked about his approach to creativity and how the process of creating something was the activity it wasn't the final artifact. It wasn't about having created the thing. You know, even with Kieran with his book, he didn't go into it to produce the book. He went into it to have the experience of writing a book and explore the issues. And I think as all of us talked about in our many episodes last season too, is you know, that's what's been so compelling about doing this show is we're combining collaboration with each other. We feel that we're connecting to an audience and providing some value. And we're in this sort of atelic exploration of these issues. Now it's all you know, centered around this telic activity of Meredith reminding us of what we need to do every day. Um, <laughs> but, but, you know, it's in, it's in service of these other things, which, you know, I think play, play, obviously plays into a lot of the themes that he was getting at. Yeah, and I think that that insight that Koshik shared with us, for him, you know, that the journey is what he's so excited about. And there's, you know, of course, the the cliche that it's the journey, not the destination. But the reason why the journey is so satisfying, if we can recognize it and be with it, is that we're not thinking about the future, a thing to come. We're not thinking about a thing that has already happened. We're thinking about now. And he talked about it a little bit in the book, you know, alluding to meditation and how that can be also a, a great way of sort of finding that satiating happiness because it's about being aware of the moment and present with that moment. So I think the major takeaway for me with Karen was that turning 40 recently made me reevaluate a ton of things. And I think, like I'd said in the beginning, it was incredibly comforting to read his book and to feel like I'm not alone in this journey together. But I also think the one thing I take away from this is not looking at things in terms of regret and actually looking at things in terms of how they turned out to be and how that can be such a positive. 
And I think a lot of us look at the, oh, I should have taken this career path or I should have done this job or I should have done that. But then you wouldn't be where you are today. And if you're a happy person now or you you feel successful or you feel like you know you live a fulfilled life, then why would you regret that in the first place? And so for me, I think it's just pivoting my mindset a little bit and looking forward to the next 40 years and making sure that I don't regret anything. Reconsidering is created by Aaron Walter, Bob Baxley, and me, Meredith Black, with editing help from Brian Paik of Pacific Audio. Original music for the show was written and performed by Kima Meraki. You'll find a full transcript of this episode and all the links mentioned at reconsidering.org. If you've enjoyed this episode, hit subscribe in your favorite podcast player to catch future episodes and discover the treasures of the Reconsidering Library. To support the show, we'd be ever so grateful if you'd leave a review on Apple Podcasts, or Google Podcasts. Your review will help others discover the show. And life, like the seasons, is ever-changing, but satisfaction can be found every day when we tune in. Until next time.